For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn, people. Because you're tuned to the Ozarks' number one show about your money. Randy Floyd, founder of Floyd Financial Group, will be your guide for straight talk about living the life you deserve in retirement. Prepare to be empowered. Now, here's your show me the money host, Randy Floyd. Thank you so much. Welcome to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. As always, we'll start with you, Randy. How are you doing this Saturday morning? Doing very well. How about you, Jeff? I am doing great, thank you. And Jake, how's this Saturday finding you? You know, I'm a little bit dumbfounded this morning, Jeff. We really? went from capitalism to socialism <laughs> in about two and a half seconds on this on this banking thing. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to explain that, Jake, and I would have to agree with you on that. I was a little unnerved, of course, when all this began to unfold, but we're going to break it down for you on today's show. We're talking about the uh, banking collapse there of at least one, two banks. I don't know how much further it's going to go, but we'll break it down for you and we'll decipher what it means to you. So that's where we'll start today. I understand there's been a little problem in the banking industry lately. Jake and Randy, I'll send it back over to your court. Yeah, so last week, uh, well, really even partially the prior week, uh, it started to kind of unfold here. But uh, a lot of you are probably aware that there was a few bank failures out on the coast. The one that's, you know, mainly in focus is Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, the government's response to that and the speed at which this collapse happened is a little bit alarming. It shows that nobody was really over there watching what was going on. So Silicon Valley Bank had a fairly unique banking practice. So they were a banker primarily to startups uh, in where else? Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. So these risky tech companies, as they come up, there's a lot of banks that don't want to loan them money because they know the chances of them getting their money back are not that good. And so what Silicon Valley Bank was engaged in was the practice of taking equity stakes in these companies in exchange for banking services. So they'd say, okay, we'll give you a portion of our equity for you to loan us money and things like that. So, you know, they've been doing this a very long time, but the problem really starts to arise when the value of that company decreases significantly. So we all kind of know what happened in 2020, 2021, where some of these risky companies went just into the stratosphere valuation wise, meaning, you know, their stock prices were way too high. You know, you had some examples of this would be like, you know, Carvana. We've talked about Carvana on here before, where, where the valuation of Carvana was probably 30 times higher than it should have been. Right. You know, other companies like QuantumScape is another company that makes the next generation lithium ion battery. They said that they're not going to have them available for seven years wow. to purchase. And that company went up to $40 billion in valuation. So this type of stuff is the kind of companies that, and, and I'm not saying those companies particularly, I'm just saying that type of company is, is who they might loan money to. And so when they loan money out to somebody like that, and then let's say that company is worth $100, they say, okay, we'll loan you money based on that $100 valuation. What happens when that valuation goes to $10? Right. So now that's what's called a net unrealized loss, meaning on the books, if they were to default on whatever the loan was, these companies, and many of them 
you know, are close to that. There's only 10 cents on the dollar to go get in the event that that happens. And so they have this gigantic discrepancy between what the books say they have in assets and what the assets really are. And so that's what really sparked the first part of this banking issue. Now, there are similar types of exposure in a lot of other banks, but not nearly to the magnitude and not nearly as risky. And so that's why we'll call it SVB for short, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, SVB had a big issue over last weekend. And then so that's kind of what started all this. And now, you know, they're looking at some of these other banks and, you know, volatility has been crazy. So over the weekend, last weekend, they said, what we're going to do is we're just going to extend FDIC insurance to all banks 100 Mm percent. Not up to 250000 You can't lose a dollar anywhere in any bank. So there's a lot of people that are cheering that going. And, and on at face value, I can understand why people would want their money to be safe. But on the backside of this, you have to understand that it encourages excessive risk-taking by banks. Right. And that's what led to the 2008 crisis, is banks taking risks, undue risks, whether they knew it or not, regardless of what form that comes in. Excessive risk-taking with a backstop you know, is a weapon of financial mass destruction. <laughs> Absolutely. And I don't think we've really seen the end of where this is going to go. But the fact that the government took over banking at the drop of a hat and nobody seems to be questioning it is pretty alarming to me. I think that, you know, it's entirely possible at this point on the other side of this that, you know, the government is going to want something for doing this. And we might have the banking system end up looking like the utilities system at some point where they control pricing, they control flow of money, and that's scary stuff. Now, again, I'm not saying that's happening right now, but it it certainly paves the way for it. Well, I do do think that probably, Jake, at least what we may see is similarly what happened back in 7, 8, and 9 when we had major loans that did get repaid with interest in many cases, in most cases, coming back. And and hopefully that would be the worst that they would do and not go further and say, oh, it's okay. And the big outcry from the left here is, you know, well, this is all Trump's fault because he rolled back Dodd-Frank. Right. So Dodd-Frank was put in after the financial crisis to raise liquidity requirements for banks so that they would be stronger in this type of environment. But the problem is, is is if we're allowed to take unlimited risk, there is no amount of capital requirement that would be enough to fix that. And so the left is kind of shifting the blame to Trump saying, well, he, he reduced regulation. So, well, what about the banks taking all this risk that they know they shouldn't be taking? Right. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how people will twist what's happening and and take the blame off the people. I mean, ultimately, who's asleep at the wheel here is these risk management people Mm -hmm. at these banks. And, I mean, there's no way that they didn't know there was a problem on Friday. And then on Monday, they can't have enough money to make payroll in Silicon Valley. Well, I don't know. Their their risk management officer was traveling the globe doing other things, if you read the Google (laughs) ESG uh, work. Quote, yeah. unquote, other things. Okay, yeah. what those <laughs> other things are? Probably looking well, for a way. Well, if another... you read the Google article, it'll fill you in on what those other things oh, are. We okay. won't get into that right here on the radio today. But sure. uh, yeah. certainly he was not managing any risk, apparently. Yeah. So I think all this kind of comes back now. A week ago, we were thinking that the Fed may go a 50 basis point rate hike. Well, I think they would 
string up Powell in the streets if he did that now. And yeah. I think he probably still needs to do that, but I don't see how he can from a public perspective standpoint. We're about to see, you know, what he's made of. We had the CPI number this last week and it was it was softer, but it was still still pretty hot, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think minus this banking issue, he probably goes 50 basis points. So we're going to see on Wednesday what he does, but it's certainly not going to be boring. I can tell you that. Well, Silicon Valley Bank, I think, was about the 16th largest bank in America. And I can understand in Silicon Valley, you know, making those loans and so forth and exposing themselves to that sort of risk. They really shouldn't have done that. But what does that mean for depositors of, let's say, smaller banks? Maybe it's the First National Bank of Springfield or something like that, or even just regional banks. I mean, is there any danger of this trickling down and happening to uh, even smaller banks? So I think that what I would say is, is that the public's response to this matters more than the actual problem. Meaning, if any of you were watching the news last week, you noticed how every major government entity that had anything to do with finance, the Treasury, the Fed, you know, pretty much anybody that could talk came out and said it was going to be okay. You know, they got Biden on his way to the plane, pulled him out there, and he said it was going to be okay. I don't know if he remembers what he said. Probably not. But he said it was going to everything's fine. You're not going to lose any money. So the biggest danger is that if everybody goes out and takes their money out, there's not enough money to get. Now, that's always the case. That's not a problem with this era. Banks loan out more money than they have in the system always. That's how mm-hmm. banking works. And so the biggest issue is we have to avoid everybody going and, and running to the bank with their hand out, and then everything will be fine. So I definitely don't think that people locally here need to go take all their money out of the bank. And we just need to remain calm. And as much as I disagree with it um, from a capitalistic standpoint and a free market standpoint, it appears that the government is going to backstop this thing in every possible way. Right. So while eggs may be short, you don't want to kill the golden goose that lays the egg, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of what it boils down to right now. And uh, I think Jake's right. I don't don't think there's any reason to panic or be, uh, I, I wouldn't say maybe a little bit of alarm, just like, okay, you know, this is kind of the next shoe to drop. And, it's, and there's always something that's going to be, you know, coming to light. And But again, I don't think this is a major issue. The biggest thing, like you said, is for people not to panic right. and go into the to the uh, chicken coop and kill all your chickens. <laughs> then you for sure won't have any eggs. Yeah. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Jake and Randy, this was a unique situation to Silicon Valley Bank and the investments or the risk that they took. And not necessarily the case with other smaller banks. Do other smaller banks take as big a risk as uh, somebody like a Silicon Valley bank would? So I don't think that banks locally here are doing the same things that Silicon Valley Bank. Would I say that Silicon Valley Bank is the only bank doing this? No. I'm sure that there are other banks doing it. It's kind of their one of their main practices of business to do this. And then, so by extending credit to these companies... A lot of times there's agreements with the CEOs of these companies that they do all their banking, all their personal banking, their home loans and mm-hmm. stuff. And you can imagine some of these people are worth, you know, fifty, hundred million dollars. Sure. You know, that's that's pretty valuable banking to a bank like that. So I think that a lot of it is certainly coast related, meaning if I had a bunch of money in New York City or in California, I would probably be more concerned than if I have money in here locally in some of these more regional banks. I really don't think there's going to be a big issue in general, but that doesn't mean there can't be more scares along the way. 
Right. And I think maybe to clarify one point here too, Jeff, a lot of people may not realize that, you know, as banks gather and accumulate assets, that gives them more borrowing power Mm -hmm. through the Federal Reserve banking system, which gives them more ability to have more capital to loan to generate more income. So it's important, though, that those depositors are not people that are dangling uh, by a shoestring off of a 30,000-foot cliff with a giant pair of scissors coming really close to you. (laughs) You And that's kind of what some of this was. And one of the things that we say a lot on this show is you can't count on people for a lot. You can't count on the government for a lot. But you can count on people to be greedy. You can count on corporations to be greedy. And what will eventually happen here is a lot of these banks are just going to get sucked up by by bigger banks who are going to be, you know, opportunistic and you know I th- I think we're probably already seeing some of that in the works. Again, it's it's kind of the natural order of things. You have one of these kind of liquidity events and those that can do suck up these other ones and they're more profitable for it. Again, I think people just need to be calm and I know that's easier said than done in a lot of cases, but you know, again, right or wrong, the government is going to back this thing all the way. So I think people can can sleep and not have to right. worry too much about it. Well, now that you explained it that way, Jake, I'm completely calm and hopefully our listeners are calm too that this is not going to affect us. We're talking with Randy and Jake Floyd, Floyd Financial Group, right here in Springfield, Missouri. This is sort of the commentary part of our program where we break down current events. We've been talking about the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and how it may affect us. If you'd like to get in and sit down with Randy and Jake and talk to them about your individual situation, maybe get on a good path towards retirement and wealth management. We're offering a no-cost, no-obligation financial review for you right now for our listeners to this radio program. To get yours, very simple, call 417-889-7233. Get on Randy and Jake's calendar. There are some slots available right now. 417-889-7233. Again, no cost, no obligation, and no judgment. 417-889-7233 or online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. We'll be right back with more of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready for a heapin' helpin' of some more real talk? Thought so. Here's another serving of Show Me the Money with your server, Randy Floyd. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be continuing to talk about the banking system and the little fail we've seen over the last few (laughs) days here and what it really means long term. Yeah, and uh, our first segment was so good there and really breaking it all down. If people are just joining us, they missed the first segment. Once again, I want to remind you that Show Me the Money is a podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcast, search Show Me the Money, Randy and Jake Floyd, Floyd Financial Group, and you'll find this show right there. Okay, so we've broken down what went on with Silicon Valley Bank and why it happened and taking excessive risk and people wanting their money and so forth. But what does that mean to us listening to this radio program today who do not have money in Silicon Valley? Valley Bank, but maybe we're banking locally here with uh, a bank right here in Springfield or one of the other major banks. What does this all mean to us and how should we react or not react? I think in the short term, there's not a lot of reaction required. I think you know what what it's going to do over the long term is is a little bit hard to say, but I can tell you that the government is not going to backstop this and not increase regulation. They're not going to backstop this and not want something in return, either guarantee-wise from the banks in the form of regulation or maybe more potentially scarily, I don't know if that's a word, but want to participate 
in these companies that they backstopped. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of things I've seen in the last five or six years that I would have thought never would have happened from a government intervention standpoint in the way the government has overstepped into people's lives. And I hope that this is not the next chapter in that. But let's talk a little bit about the effects on people day to day. One of the things that we've talked about in the previous segment, but that we talk a lot about is is the Fed and the tightening overall. The reason we always talk about the Fed raising rates or tightening or loosening or whatever the case may be in that day is it really has a big effect on asset prices in general. So you're the value of your house, the value of the stock market, all those types of things are directly correlated to interest rates. So that's why we're always talking about them. So if, if the Fed comes out on the other side of this and says, hey, we're going to backstop this, but we're going to really increase capital requirements for banks, what effect does that have? If a bank cannot loan out as much money as it did before, that has the, the effect of tightening. Mm-hmm. If they raise capital requirements, that's effectively what they're doing. Is they're saying, hey, bank, instead of loaning this dollar out four times, you can only loan it out two times. And then again, I'm not saying that's how it works. I'm just saying that's an example. If that's the case, it has the tightening effect, the same effect as, say, raising interest rates would have. And so now the math problem becomes quite a bit more complex for Jay Powell and the Fed and just the system in general, because now how much more rate raising do we have to do to fix inflation Mm -hmm. while we're tightening the strings on the banking sector? And the answer is it's a little bit unprecedented. People aren't going to know the answer to that. You know, they're going to make their best guess and see kind of where it falls. What I do know is, is that I'm not seeing prices stop going up at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I imagine there's probably a lot of people listening to this that go to the grocery store and I'm looking at things, you know, there's a handful of things that I kind of file away in my mind, what they cost. And then every time they go up, I'm just shocked. Probably the biggest one for me, when I was growing up, my sister and I, when I was like 13, we used to drink Dr. Pepper a lot. Yep. And so when I was 13, I think was about when the cube first came out of Dr. Pepper. So now they put them all in one layer, right? But back, uh, this would have been 1997, 1998, they came out with, instead of a 12-pack, you could get a 24-pack. And wow. it, was, it was three rows across, four rows deep, but stacked too high. And it was this big cube looking thing mm-hmm. and i remember that we could buy those for 3.99 in 1997 right and i remember thinking man that's quite a bit of money yeah you know for this for this dr pepper you know and so today 24 pack of dr pepper at walmart is 12 dollars and 97 cents mm. three years ago it was like 8.99 yeah so they're talking about this you know six percent inflation and five percent inflation well, some things it's like 20% inflation and 30% inflation. And I guarantee if you go to like a fast food restaurant right now, that's another place you can really see it, man. I mean, oh yeah, you go to McDonald's and you order off the, the quote unquote value menu and, <laughs> and you know, I know it's over $10. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, you can go, you can go to certainly fast casual places, but even sit down restaurants yeah. for the same price point you bet. Uh, as McDonald's now. And I think that. You know, people don't care what the what the metrics say. They care what they're paying at the grocery store. They care what they're paying at the gas pump, which the gas sure. is less than it, than it was, but it's still a lot more than it was four years ago. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um. And and I think that it's easy to sit here and say, well, inflation's coming down. Well, it doesn't feel like it. And I think there's also a big disconnect between what disinflation is and deflation. 
Okay, so disinflation is where you have the rate of inflation subsiding, coming down. So if we go from 9% inflation to 8% inflation, that's disinflation. That does not mean that prices are coming down. It means they are simply going up at a lower rate. Right. That is a huge disconnect, one that our president certainly doesn't understand. If you listen to anything that comes out of his mouth, he's like, well, prices came down 8%. And I'm like, what? That's simply not the case. Yeah, but they so, went up 50% um, like a month ago. Now well, they're down but they're 8%. Not, they're, <laughs> but they're not even down. He doesn't right. understand what the metrics are. Sure, yeah. And, and so it, the rate of inflation is coming down, but part of that is a natural effect mm-hmm. after a spike in inflation. I mean, it is good that it's coming down, but it's certainly not back to the 2% goal, the 2% target that the Fed has, at which he has repeatedly said over and over and over and over that he's not going to change that target. That's one of the big speculations. It was like, well, he'll just give up and make it 4%. Well, he has not made any indication that he's willing to do that. There has been other governments around the world that have started to do that. you know. But if he's going to get it back to 2%, we're going to have to have a recession. I know, Jeff, you've been listening to us talk on oh, yeah. the show for the last two, even three years. And yeah. I'm saying, you know, we cannot get out of this without pain. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not possible. It's, it's the people talk about this runway. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a landing area where we can have a soft landing, quote unquote. You hear that term, you know, where, where we're on this side of inflation, but we're, we're on the right side of inflation, but we're on the right side of, of the recession argument. I would argue there is no runway. Either we're going to have runaway inflation or we're going to have a recession, and there's not any middle ground. And I think that we cannot afford to have inflation run away, so there must be at least some recession. And I think that you know, while we're starting to feel a little bit more validated with this banking thing, it's not really where I would have liked it to come from, mm-hmm. but we're going to see more things break before this is over. And the job situation still is very tight, and everybody still needs help. It's easing a teeny, teeny, tiny bit, but we're going to have to see a lot more people out of work before this thing is over. And Honestly, the sooner it happens, the sooner we can all get back to life, you know. Um, they're kind of boiling us like the frog in the pan, you hmm. know. Um, there's an old adage, a little old story, you know, if you if you throw a frog into boiling water, he'll just jump out. Mm-hmm. But if you put him in room temperature water and then you increase the heat to boiling, he'll sit there and boil. Right. I feel like we're the boiling frog right now, you know. <laughs> I wish they would just toss us in yeah. to the boiling water. It hurts a little bit. We jump out and mm-hmm. life goes on. You know, but I, I really feel like that's kind of where we're at. And again, for the average person, we don't need to be concerned about, you know, the solvency of the banking system. Right. But we do need to understand that this thing is still not over. Right. And, and everybody wants to say as soon as something happens, oh, it's over. It's over. Well, mm-hmm. that's not really the way it works. And right. we still have a long way to go before we're done. Yeah. So I think he's right. You know, Jeff, we just have we have a long way to get through this whole process. But I will say this, there's still places to make money. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be places to make money. We will get to the other side of this and we will heal up again and there'll be a lot of money to be made. And I know we've been saying this, like Jake said, for a while now, but it is true. We will get to the other side of it. We just don't know exactly when. So we're using all the tools we have at our discretion mm-hmm. to make people some interest right now, because with interest rates being higher, there are some uh, funds and things that we can put money into, you know, bank CDs again, and the banking system is not falling apart down around our ears. So mm-hmm. you can still count on a, a CD, you know, they're paying four and a half percent in some cases. Now we can get those through TD. Uh, I've even, even seen a couple out there 
at north of five, kind of predicting that the Fed was going to raise rates, uh, you know, maybe up to five, five and a quarter percent this next time, this next go around here in March. But there's still plenty of places to go. We'll get to the other side of this. And mm-hmm. uh, for everybody listening to the show, just know that Jake and I are watching your stuff every day. Right. We're, we're on it and we know where we are. If you have questions, of course, you know where we are. You can feel free to call us. Right. And I'm sure the phone will ring a lot after this on Monday. I hope I want to so. say one more thing before yeah. we close on this segment here, Jeff. Yep. So there's a board game. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called Monopoly. Oh, yeah. Argu- arguably maybe the most famous board game in mm-hmm. history. Um, certainly top five, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Rule 11 states, what happens if the bank runs out of money? Some players think that the bank is bankrupt if it runs out of money. The bank never goes bankrupt. The bank never goes bankrupt? Wow. To continue playing, use slips of paper to keep track of each other's banking transactions until the bank has enough paper money to operate again. The banker may also issue new money on slips of ordinary paper. Man, that's an interesting how much that sounds like our banking the system. The real thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that that was so interesting. I saw that somebody posted that in relation to the banking debacle, and I thought, man, that is, that is a little, little scary how, uh, how true that sounds right now. That's basically what we did during the pandemic when yeah. we put all this cash in the system. So I've got two things to say here to close this off, one of which is to remain calm, keep your seatbelts fastened, and the other is an apology to uh, PETA for that frog analogy there. We didn't, we didn't mean it. We love animals here. <laughs> Jake, what, is, what does PETA stand for? I don't even know what it stands for. People eating tasty animals. <laughs> okay, there you go. Jake said At least it. on this show, that's what it <laughs> that's is. That's right. Jake said it, not me. You're listening to Floyd Financial Group's Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade. Thanks for joining us here this fine Saturday morning. We hope that we've been able to allay your fears a little bit about the banking industry. And once again, if you'd like to sit down and talk with Randy and Jake about your individual situation, get on a retirement roadmap that will get you to and through retirement, get you retired, and cause you to stay retired. Call this number for your consultation, 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. You can also get your plan online by requesting at floydfinancialgroup.com that's floydfinancialgroup.com time for a break we'll be right back with more of show me the money right after this on 104.1 fm kspf where springfield comes to talk back with your financial catch of the day and it's a big one here's more show me the money radio with your host randy floyd Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about possible changes to Social Security. And Randy and Jake, of course, I think most people know that Social Security is the bedrock of a lot of people's income plans in retirement. And the other day, my wife rushed into my studio and my office here and said, hey, did you hear that Social Security is going to be going away? I said, hold on, wait just a minute. For those of us who are already receiving Social Security, I don't think that there are going to be any major changes. But there are some changes on the horizon for those people who are not yet, I'll say, senior or wise like we are in years. So let's uh, begin right there. I understand there are some changes. Can you sort of break it down from there? Yeah, so we'll talk about some real basics here. You know, number one, as we look at society in general, you know, we're aging, and so more people are on Social Security. 
The other thing that I would say, even though in many cases, those that are not aging and are not older, there's a lot more people on social security disability and all those sorts of things than we've had in the past. So as a society, we've put a little bit more pressure on social security than maybe we had to due to disabilities and some things like that. But again, the demographics of the country are that people are just getting older. So that's one of the things that pulls on that a little bit more. And, you know, every uh, the last two years, we've gotten pretty substantial Social Security raises. And so right now, I mm-hmm. think it's about $116 billion a month that right. we pay out in Social Security benefits, which is, you know, quite a little bit of money there, Jeff. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, for the longest time, Social Security has been probably, you know, subject to the low interest rates. You know, Social Security was an investment fund. Basically, it earned interest. And when interest rates were really, really low, Social Security didn't make very much. Also, you know, we've had uh, economic downturns where people retired early. We talked about the disability portion of that. So there's been a lot of pressure from a lot of different ways on Social Security. Now, the problem is, how do we fix it? Because we know if we don't do anything, by 2033 is the estimate now, Mm -hmm. uh, Social Security will not be in a position to continue to pay benefits as we know it, and we might have to reduce benefits as much as 20%. So there's been several solutions brought up. One was to just go ahead and let's cut Social Security by 23% like right now. Well, that was brought up probably 60, 90 days ago. And that went over kind of like a balloon made of lead. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> Like a Chinese balloon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The lifespan uh, of a Chinese balloon over these U.S. territories. I mean, that would not be yeah. a popular thing. And I don't think that any politician would get elected on that platform. No, they wouldn't. And and that's not something that, that is, that, that's kind of been written off. But there are a couple of things that they are looking at. Number one, of course, would be to raise the retirement age. And one of the things that they're talking about is for people that were born in 1978 and later. Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> Sorry, Jake. That's Jake. <laughs> that they would have a 70-year age requirement mm-hmm. to collect full Social Security. I'm not sure that that alone is enough to fix it. The other thing they've thought about doing is, uh, are you ready for this, Jeff? They're, they're going to go ahead and, and tax people Uh-oh. again. And, you know, right now, I think the number is 147000 is where you get to stop paying Social Security tax on your paycheck. Over the years, I remember, you know, years ago when it was like 50000 then it went to sixty, and then eighty, and then 90, and then 100, and here we are at 147000 I think the number is. Mm-hmm. Don't hold me to that exactly, but it's within 1000 or two of where it is. And then they're saying, well, now, if you get above 250000 we're going to start to tax you for Social Security again is one of the, you know, one of the, the remedies, I guess you would call it, that they have. Taxation uh, without representation. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And it's taxation on top of taxation on top of taxation. And right. then, of course, people come into my office sometimes and they say, you mean we have to pay taxes on Social Security? I think they call that double jeopardy. That was, no, that, that's, that's being tried for the same thing twice. Right. Yeah, it kind of feels the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah I thought I taxes on that once. <laughs> so really, you know, basically, I think what we need to come away from this with is, number one, we know that for a lot of people, they cannot survive without Social Security. I In know. fact, I would say, most, you know, around here, around Springfield, you know, you're going to have 40 to 50 percent of people's income 
coming from Social Security in many, many, many cases, and sometimes much more than that. just depends on their situation. But for the people we see through the office here, I would say it's 50% for sure of people's income that comes in. So we know that Congress and those folks are not just going to gut the system. But, you know, who does pay this bill? And, you know, one of the things that we we look at is as the the aging of America happens and we have people are having fewer children, there'll be fewer people to help fund the system looking forward. You know, where do we come up with these dollars? And there's several things, you know, that we can that they could be looking to do. And, you know, that is, again, raising that limit on payroll tax reinstating it again, but after the 147 at the 250 mark. The other thing they could do is they could look at how small companies like LLCs and things that, uh, and how companies take income, W-2 wage versus K-1 is one of the things that they could look at there that might really put some extra teeth into shoring up the Social Security system. The long and the short of it, we know this, they are not going to let Social Security go under. They may make it less viable to retire early, but they are not going to let it go under. And for those of us who are getting the AARP in the mail, you know, we're mature Americans at this point. They call us senior citizens, although I don't really feel senior anymore. I think the definition of senior citizen should be changed a bit. But for those of us who maybe are already on Social Security, does this mean that there are going to be any changes whatsoever for the vast majority of people? You know, I would say that for people that are retired, I would even go one further. I would say that probably my estimate of this would be for sure, you know, if you're 60 and older, you're probably not going to see much change to it. If you're under that age, yeah, you could be in for a little bit of a ride. I think that personally, my take on it is if you have already filed for Social Security, Mm -hmm. I think for sure I would agree that that part is probably safe. There's no way that they're going to reduce benefits of people that have made irreversible decisions to retire, things like that. I mean, that's just going to go over so poorly. And and again, we can count on people to be greedy, right? And so that includes presidents and their campaigns. They're not going to chop off their voters. So I think that's one of the considerations that we haven't really had to make this distinction in the past, but you know, when you're deciding whether to file for Social Security, I feel like you have to at least weigh that part in a little bit and say, normally maybe I wouldn't file at 62. But, you know, if I was only going to wait one more year, now it may be worth considering going ahead and turning it on before they start making a lot of these changes because most likely people that have already filed will be grandfathered in, in my estimation. I do agree with Randy, though, that probably 60 and older, you're probably fine anyway. The cost of living adjustment that we got in 2023 was 8.7%. Do you see that maybe those cost of living adjustments will go down and will not account as much for inflation to sort of right the ship a little bit? Well, I think this, I mean, they base it on the consumer price index, which today was 6% flat, I think is what they were looking at year over year as to where we actually were. Do they cut Social Security benefits if we have a no, negative no, no. CPI? It doesn't go that way. No, <laughs> okay. it's, it's a one-way street. It's, huh? sort of it's like a, a one-way street. Fixed, wow. fixed index only, annuity. Yeah, you can make money. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like it. playing blackjack. When, uh, yeah. but, you, but when you lose, you don't lose. Yeah, and when you it. win, you, you, you win big. That's yeah. it. So if you think about it, looking back over our shoulder, you know, probably if you look back the last 40 years, I'll bet you the annual cost of living adjustment for Social Security was probably two and a half, might have been three percent. That would have been it. So here in the last couple of years, you know, we got a six and change the year before. We got an eight and change last year. I mean, that's not going to continue, I'm sure. But we could look at another six percent this year, which definitely isn't helping the coffers of Social Security. Well, and the weight of that will go forward forever at this point. Exactly. Because even people that are 
30 years old, their social security is getting adjusted forward based on these numbers. I think it's hard to overstate how big a deal a few eights and nines and sixes Mm -hmm. in these increases. I mean, over the next 100 years, 150 years, I mean, because again, this rate is kind of baked into everybody filing now, everybody that's about to file, the people that are 40 years from filing, and the people that aren't even born yet in some ways are kind of baked into this cake. So I think I think it has only made the Social Security problem much bigger to have these gigantic raises. While it may feel good uh, in the short term because it's helping combat inflation, you know, it really strains the system. For those younger listeners who are listening to us today, maybe they haven't filed for Social Security. Maybe they're as young as Jake there. Maybe they're in their 30s. Maybe they're in their 40s. Is the way that you design their investment plans going to be different considering the fact that Social Security may not be counted on as much as it was in the past? I think it has to be. When we build a plan, we're aiming for the highest possible success rate. As you may know, in life, nothing is 100%. And so what we want to do is build plans for people that if we do X, then here's what you can expect in retirement. And I think that there's too much uncertainty around Social Security to bank on it if you're if you're 35, 40 years old. You know, will there be something there? Yes, there will be something. But 20 years from now, it could be totally different. We could have, you know, universal basic income or something like that taking over Social Security. You know, who knows what the left may try to cram down our throats. Everybody will probably have their own personal robot there, so they won't have to work anymore. (laughs) I'm afraid of those. (laughs) Well, you know, the problem is it might be a Transformers moment, you know. Yeah. You know the movie The Transformers, right? I mean, who knows? Decepticon. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm afraid of that AI. Seriously, seriously, if you remember, Jeff, the the old song in the year 2525 by Zagger and Evans. Yep, I do. You know, and a lot of that stuff, if you think about it, is coming true. You know, talking about picking your baby from the bottom of a long glass tube. Well, that's... They're doing that. It's happening now. You know, I mean, and the fact that in what a certain year that your arms, your legs have nothing to do, some machine doing that for you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I think probably my favorite statement that I've seen several times uh, recently, but man, it sure feels right. Is you know the book 1984 by George Orwell Orwell, was a warning. Yep. Not an instruction manual. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I'm impressed, Randy, that you pulled that one out. Zager and Evans in the year 2525. I'd nearly forgotten about that. I'm sure it jogged a lot of people's memories. We're talking with Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. We're talking about Social Security here. Once again, if you'd like to sit down with Randy and Jake and talk about your particular plan, and if you want to ask your questions about Social Security, maybe ways to maximize your benefit, you can do that by getting your no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment financial plan. To get yours, 417-889-7233 is the number to call. Get on the calendar sooner than later and reserve your spot, 417-889-7233. You can also request your plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. When we come back, we'll wrap it all up for today's show right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good. Because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpa, Randy Floyd. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about an 85-year Harvard study about happiness in retirement. That's right, Randy. And if my math is correct, that would put us back to about 1938 that Harvard researchers did that study to find out what makes people happy. 
And that really applies to us going into retirement. I mean, retirement is a time that maybe you want to do the things that you want to do. You've gotten everything cleaned out around the house. You've gotten the lawn looking great and everything else. But then you sort of look around and go, now what? I'm really not happy because I miss working. What's your take on that? What are people telling you who come in who have been retired for six months or a year or so who do have that problem? Yeah, so one thing I would say is most of our folks here uh, in the last bastion of sanity are pretty happy in retirement. Mm-hmm. I, I just have to say that they are. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that, you know, we still have a lot of good old-fashioned family values here. We still like to spend time with family. Family's important to us. And, and we're connected here more than we are in major cities. Right. You know, the pace of life here is just a little bit slower. You know, and I talk to retirees that moved here from California, that moved here from Chicago, from Minneapolis, you know, from Florida, all around. And the one thing that we always talk about is if we travel to Dallas or we travel to a major city when we get back here, how the stress, you just kind of go, huh, when you get back you <laughs> I know, know. here yeah. and you can just kind of breathe, you know. So I think one of the things that's kind of important here about this study that I'm picking up on here is... Uh, what they said was they studied health records from 724 people and asked detailed questions about their lives in two-year intervals. So they were actually tracking these people as they lived and went through their life. And the number one challenge people face in retirement was not being able to replace social connections. Mm-hmm. And boy, you know, if you think about it today, I'm not so sure that social media is that. Maybe it should be anti-social media. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm just yeah, not think, sure that that gels and goes together for me. I'm calling it social media. Yeah. I think that our creator designed us to be social yeah. face-to-face. You know, we're not supposed to be shut in our basements 20 hours a day. Right. And I think that social interaction is a massive, massive part of being happy in retirement. And then I also think it's a sense of purpose. And again, having Christian values in this area, you know, I think that's why so many of our clients are happy in retirement is they understand what life is about <clears throat> and that life is not about making yourself happy all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, doing things that make you short-term happy will not generate happiness, you know, or, or fulfillment in life. And I think that there's lots of our clients that understand that they understand that there's value in hard work, even after retirement, you know, working around their property and things like that, or volunteering, that kind of thing, I think really brings people fulfillment more than some of the other things that you might think would matter, meaning having tons of money or that kind of thing. I would say that there's no correlation, at least in our office, between how much money somebody has and how happy they are. Right. I would say that most people are, you know, they understand where happiness really comes from. And one of the participants in this uh, 1938 study was asked what he missed about being a doctor for almost 50 years. And he said, absolutely nothing about the work itself. What I miss is the people and the friendships. And uh, Randy, if you were to go away from Floyd Financial Group and, you know, you didn't come in every day, I mean, it's the people who work there really pretty much like family when you talk about Ashley and Taylor and and Zach and all the folks that uh, work there. But you have cultivated a life outside of work. Can you elaborate on that and what makes Randy happy? 
Yeah. So, so, you know, there's a lot of things, Lisa and I, my wife, and, and you know, I, I would say this too, being happily married, you know, for a long time yeah. is, it goes a long way you in your happiness. And I mean a long uh, in, time. In, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's to be commended. Yeah. Couldn't it's, resist. Sorry. It's been, a, it's been a day or two, but yeah, you know, so we have church and, and we're pretty active in, and involved there. And I think probably one of the things I'm going to want to do is see how I might use my time in retirement doing some things there. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I can, you know, lend anything that I've learned over my years in business and dealing with people to help other people, maybe do that, maybe be some sort of a business mentor, that sort of thing on really pretty much a volunteer basis. The other thing is, you know, I love to ride bikes. I love to swim. I love to run. And, you know, so my wife and I were looking forward to doing some traveling around the countryside to see all the places we have in this great country. We're not much at this point, at least to internationally travel, because I simply hate to fly more than three hours. Yeah. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to do. And then we'll have family around us and stuff. But I will say this, you know, I have I've considered the day that I walk out this door and that I don't come back anymore. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it is a it tugs on the old heartstrings just a little bit to think about. So it is important. And one of the things we talk about with every potential retiree that comes in our door is this very thing. How do you see retirement? What do you plan to do? What is it going to cost to fund that? And that becomes a very, very big part of the overall plan for retirement. And I think about these professional athletes who retire, sometimes uh, baseball players, you know, and if they make it past 30 in their game, they really played a long time. And when it comes time to make that retirement speech, many times they choke up. They've been playing the game since they were six years old. They're now 32 years old and they've got a long way to go. They don't know what they're going to do with their time. Yeah, for sure. I could see that easily. And, you know, and some of those folks implode because they don't find it. I mean, that really makes me feel sorry for these 30-year-old soccer players with $50 million retiring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they say money can't buy you happiness, Jake, and I think there's something to that, too. Yeah, I've got all the money. I can buy everything I want. But, you know, buying stuff doesn't necessarily make you happy. It's all about social relationships and having some sort of purpose in life. And while life would be a lot harder if we did didn't have enough money. Having money is better than not having money. We're talking with Randy and Jacob Floyd Financial Group. We're talking about expectations for retirement and the number one thing that people say, and that is missing relationships. Another thing I want you to comment on, and I know it's not as much in the last bastion sanity, but for many people in many parts of the country, and in my family, it is this way, that our kids and grandkids, and you know, they're not just right around the corner anymore. They have moved off to greener pastures or what they consider greener pastures. They're scattered all over the country. And sometimes you're lucky if you see your kids and your grandkids once a year. Yeah, we talk about that a lot in here, and we see that many times when people get ready to retire, they move closer to family. And sometimes, that, like you said, they have family in Seattle and Florida and Maine oh, yeah. and, and Arizona, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and so they're trying to figure out where to move uh, crazy. You know, to make that work. So yeah, you're you're exactly right. So I think one of the things that is very important is that people figure out a way to spend time with family as they're in their retirement years. And then there's a lot of folks that are that are pretty lucky. You know, they have a lot of family still right around them, so that's not difficult for them. And they get to spend lots of time with their grandkids and that sort of thing. So and and you know, the grandkids, your kids are great, you love them, but the grandkids are grand. They're much better, right? Hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> they're they're wonderful. They're, Am I not wonderful? 
You are wonderful. <laughs> you are wonderful, Jake. We're talking with Randy and Jake here about what to do in retirement. And as I said, families are so scattered. We have uh, one that lives in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, he's born and raised in Los Angeles, but I got to tell you, Randy, I ain't moving there anytime soon. So if you are thinking about what you're going to be doing in retirement and you want to talk about the non-financial aspects of retirement, of course, Randy and Jake can talk about the financial aspects, but I'm sure that they've got some words of wisdom to share with you about the non-financial aspects of retirement. Get in and sit down with Randy and Jake and talk about how you're going to get to retirement and stay retired and how you're going to be happy in retirement. To get your retirement roadmap, 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233. You can also also request your no-cost, no-obligation financial plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Out of time for this week, gentlemen. I want to thank you for your time, but most of all, I want to thank our fine listeners here in the last bastion of sanity, Springfield, Missouri. For Randy and Jake, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great Saturday, won't you? We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk.